Well, I've entitled this morning's message, Extending Grace. You know, all too often, it seems like we find ourselves acting like the slave in Matthew 18. And I just want to read that to you right now. Matthew 18, 23 through 32. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Can you imagine that happened today? You couldn't pay your credit card bill. They started selling off your kids. Some of you guys would not be paying your credit card bills on purpose. I can see what you guys are thinking right now. He says, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of his debt. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when the fellow servants saw that he had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. All too often I find that Christians, unfortunately, find themselves in the position of that slave. And I recognize that the above scripture is referring to forgiveness specifically, but the truth is is that grace and forgiveness are intrinsically linked together. You can't have one without the other, at least grace as far as Christians are concerned. And forgiveness was actually a part of the package, a part of the grace that was extended towards us through Jesus Christ. So I wonder, if this is the case, how is it that when we've had such an incredible thing bestowed on us, such incredible grace and forgiveness, so undeserved, that we're so unworthy of, how is it that when that was bestowed upon us, it is so easy to withhold it from others? You know, it's one of those things that I've seen as as a pastor and even before a Christian, I've seen it many, many times. Somebody falls somebody fails, somebody stumbles. And our first instinct is to withhold the grace that was given to us every time that we fell, every time that we stumbled. It has been said that Christians are the only army who shoot their wounded. And it's a sad thing, and you think about it. We've had so many... I mean, just think about the... the, um, well-known Christians who have fallen... And we ostracize them. We jump all over them. Just recently, um, Laura Laura Daigle, I think is her name, Lauren or Lauren Daigle? Is it Lauren or Laura? Lauren Daigle was just on The Ellen Show. And first and foremost, she got ridiculed for going on a show that was headed up by a a lesbian. You know, and and I don't get that because Paul said that that we're not supposed to be a part of the world, but we still have to go into the world. When he said don't associate with people like this, he was saying don't associate with people who say they're Christians but obviously don't act like it. If they don't say they're Christians, get out there because how else are we going to tell them about Jesus? So I don't get that. Anyway, she did the show and she was kind of picked on about that, but then um, she went on and did an interview. And I don't agree with what she said. 
Uh, she made some inf- an unfortunate statement, but the reaction from the Christian community has me absolutely concerned. Because they asked her, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? Now, to be clear, so we know where we're coming from as a church, we do believe that homosexuality is a sin. Just like any other sin, it can be forgiven. People can be delivered from it. God can touch them and make a difference. Just because someone is in that sin doesn't mean they're not allowed in the church or to come to the doors. We're going to love them just like anybody else. You know, it could be said, do you let, do you let uh, uh, lesbian or gay people in your church? Well, we let all manners of sinners in our church. We let them all come in because we want to tell them about Jesus. But she was, she was, she was asked a question and said, do you believe that it's a sin? And I don't know her heart and why she said what she said, but she said, uh, I have a hard time with that one because I know and love so many people that are gay. So she didn't say yes, she didn't say no, she just said she's struggling with that one, and, and I disagree with that. I, I, I wish she would have took a stronger stance. But the way that the Christian community has attacked her for that, when truthfully, she's done more for reaching people that haven't heard about Jesus with her music with the gospel than most of us in this room can say. And immediately she was pounced on. She made a mistake. Maybe it's one of those areas the scripture says that we have to work out our own salvation. I don't know about you guys, but I don't have it all figured out. There are still times that I have doubts in my life and I have questions in my life and I'm trying to figure things out. But she was pounced on. And I was heartbroken because my first instant Why have I who have been extended so much grace, so much love? Why is my first instinct to ostracize and point fingers and condemn? You know, and I I wonder that. I I ask God to help me with that. Help me to see people like he sees them because even when people fall, he still loves them and there's still opportunity. And I pray that uh, she will grow from this, you know, and that God will give her a definitive answer or that she'll have her leaders in her life that can say, let me sit down with you in the scriptures and see what it says. But the problem is, I think so many people think that, that when you say that homosexuality is a sin, that means you don't love homosexual people. And the truth is, that's not, that couldn't be far. Because they sinned, I would have to kick you guys all out of this church. And I'd have to walk behind you. It'd be empty. Because we've all fallen. We've all failed. And if we didn't love people because they had problems, we would be a sad bunch of people. We've been extended so much love. And the thing is, is that when we stumble, when we fall, we want God to continue to extend grace to us and forgiveness to us. And we certainly want other people to be understanding and to help walk with us. We want them to do the same thing. When we, repent, we fall and we're repentant, we want others to know that these failures don't define me. They're just something that happened, but I'm going to get through it. They're not who I am. My identity is in Christ. And we want another chance. Even if we realize that there are consequences. As we go, well, go through this message today, and I'll, I'll mention it and remind you, I understand that there's a consequence for sin. There's a consequence for falling. And we will deal with that. But that doesn't mean we have to shoot people while they're down. Because when we fall, while we understand that there might be consequences, we don't want it to be the end. We don't want that to be the period on our life. We want to get back up. And we need people around us that will help us do that very thing. So why is it if we want to be treated that way, our first instinct is to point fingers and condemn at others? I don't know. See, one of the things when we 
You may not know when pastors write messages, a lot of the times God's speaking to them and you just get the overflow. Because I do it too and I wonder why that is. I wonder why when people fall we look at them and we don't see them the same way that we saw them a day ago. I wonder why do we instantly see the failure instead of seeing the Christ in them. That's what Paul said, I resolve to see, see you in no other way but Christ in you. thing is though is we judge and we forget that we also have struggles we forget that we also need grace and forgiveness we forgive that we have felt we needed others to help us get back up to come alongside of us and we certainly didn't need people kicking us while we were down the truth is church i think we all have to get better at showing grace to one another And like I said, this doesn't mean that we sweep things under the rug. If stuff happens, we have to deal with it. The reality is is that that it has to be dealt with, but we have to do it in such a way where the goal is restoring someone who has fallen, not pushing them away and trying to hide. And this doesn't mean that there won't be discipline when it's required, and it certainly doesn't mean there's not going to be a consequence for sin. I'll tell you right now that if you fall and you sin and you fail, there are going to be consequences in your life. The truth is, is that if somebody is to, to go ahead and, and cheat on their spouse, they can be forgiven for that. And, and hopefully their spouses can come together and even work that out and get through it. But how many of there's going to be consequences and pain and hardship in that relationship going forward? Even though there can be restoration. So there are consequences. So the truth is, is that even as we preach this message, we understand that we want to extend grace. It doesn't mean that we can live however we want and it's going to be all okay because there's always consequences and we are called to be holy people. He is holy, so we shall be holy. Amen. But I do think it means that our first instinct should be compassion and restoration instead of fire and fury, as it so often is. But the thing is, I think... A lot of our problem in the Christian community as a whole is that many of us don't even know what grace really is. We don't even know what it looks like, how it's, how it's used, how it's demonstrated. We don't even have a true revelation of the grace that's been demonstrated in our own lives. So in order to extend grace to one another, I think we really need to figure out what grace is. So that's how this message started. I was going to figure out how I can describe grace. And I thought it was going to be easy. I mean, really, we've been taught about grace our whole lives as Christians. I thought this, I mean, it can't be that difficult. So I started looking at the word that is translated to grace in the Bible. And it's actually the, the Greek word, charis, is the word that's, used, that's translated to grace. And uh, it appears over 170 times in the New Testament, this word, this Greek word, charis. And I found out it's actually not nearly as clear-cut as you would think it is because actually some of the times that that word is used, we're not even 100% sure what the writer meant by that word. And I'm like, it's unclear. How can we not know what grace means? And I found out, well, well, the the word that we use for grace, the the Greek word that's translated to to charis, it's actually a very common Greek word. It was used in all spoken periods of Greek. Anytime people spoke Greek, that word was used. And it was 
written in the Bible. It was written in secular writings. This word is a super, super common word. It's used everywhere in Greek writings. And it had far more meanings than any one English word can use to describe this word. It's one of those words that that just has a bunch of different meanings depending on how you use it. And to help you think about that, uh, what, what does that mean? How can a word have a bunch of meanings? We actually have a bunch in the English language, and the one that popped to my head was the word hot, right? So you can say, man, it was hot outside today, and that means the temperature was hot. You know, the, we're, we're measuring temperature. And you can say, man, that salsa was, was really hot. And now we're talking about a degree of spiciness, right? I mean, salsa is cold. If you've got temperature hot salsa, you don't want it. It's typically served cold or room temperature at worst. But we can say it's hot and it's talking about spiciness. Or we could say, man, we went and watched that band last night. The band was hot last night. And we're talking about the, the measure of the quality of the music they were doing in their performance. Or I could say, man, my wife is hot. And I'm talking about her good lookedness. And I want you to know that that word is actually in my notes, lookedness. I wrote it and. And Microsoft Word put squigglies under it and said it wasn't right. And I ignored it because I like it. Because my wife has got some good lookedness. But it's, it's, it's words like that. I mean, it's got so many different meanings and they're so disparate. They're so different. And here's some examples. I was looking through the International Standard Bible, Bible Encyclopedia. And here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rail off a, a bunch of ways that this caris is used in the New Testament. And we're not even going to get into grace in the Old Testament. It's a different word. It's used differently. But uh, th- this word, karis, can be denote pleasant external appearance, gracefulness, or loveliness. Think of like a graceful dancer. Luke 4.22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So the gracious words, the lovely words that were coming out of his mouth, that's, that's one way that, that the karis is translated to to gracious. Objectively, charis can may denote the impression produced by gracefulness. So this is the same word. In John 3, John 1, 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. So joy is, is a translation of charis, that word that we translate to grace. It can be a mental attribute that can be translated by graciousness or when directed toward a particular person. Um, it can be translated as favor. So Luke five two fifty sorry Luke two fifty two says, "And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man." So that's the same word charis, but it's translated to favor in this instance. As the complement to this, charis denotes emotion awakened in the recipient of such favor, or in other words, gratitude. So in Luke seventeen nine, it says, "Does he thank?" The servant, because he did what was commanded, or this is gratitude, does he thank? That's the same word. Anybody getting confused yet? I mean, we're all over the place with the translation of this word already. Concretely, caris may mean the, the act by which graciousness is expressed. 1 Corinthians 6.3, it says, When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So now it's being used as a concrete example of a gift. In the two chapters of 1 Corinthians 8 through 9, charis is used 10 times each with a different meaning in use. The same word, 10 times, different meaning in use. The writer of the International Standards Bible Encyclopedia said this. He said, it is used in so many different senses as to suggest that Paul is consciously playing with the term. 
You see, the thing is, though, this word wasn't originally a Christian term. As you can see, it's used for everything. This was, the, this was the one word that they just used for all kinds of stuff. Like, you guys ever seen The Matrix? You're like, you think everybody, everything tastes like chicken because they didn't know what to make chicken taste like? This is the word, the word, the chicken word. So what this is, use it for everything. It can be anything. This is the, the same International Standards Bible Encyclopedia says this. Naturally, the various meanings of the word were simply taken over from ordinary language by the New Testament writers. And so it is quite illegitimate to try to construct on the basis of all occurrences of the word a single doctrine that will account for all various usages. One word that expressed both charm of speech and thankfulness of blessings was doubtless felt to be a mere accident if it was thought of at all. But nonetheless, the very elasticity of the world, the word enabled it to receive still another new and technically Christian meaning. You wonder what that basically said? We stole it. We stole the word, just use it for our own stuff. Like it, it can mean all this other stuff. We're going to tack on a few more meanings. and we're gonna, It's kind of like when they, they started calling Christians Christians at first. The so scripture says that, that it was supposed to be an insult, and we're like, now we're, gonna, we're just going to keep that. And now it's what we call ourselves. It's a good thing. Yeah, we, we just stole this word, caris. We just stole it. But for the Christian definition of caris, Every use is in, in the context of Christianity can be expressed like this. If we want to give it one definition, is that everything that God accomplished in Christ that we are utterly dependent on and that we did not deserve and that God was not required to give, that is grace. This is salvation, forgiveness, wholeness, holiness, strength, peace, power. And what I think is potentially the most important thing that we receive by grace is newness of life. All of these things are encompassed in grace. It's a very big word. It holds a lot of stuff. But I think we have to understand at least the Christian use of the word grace if we want to go forward with this. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and and this is according to the riches of his grace. As I was looking through, trying to find a set of verses that encapsulate grace this is the one that i found that fit it the best because if i actually had to go through and list all the verses and go through this we could just go straight on through till next sunday but i wanted to find one that i that i thought could could maybe encapsulate it a little bit and this is what i found because we see some things here one we see that this actually comes through the father it's it's given as a as a gift through him all these blessed be the god and father our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even these blessings are a part of grace. We begin to see that this comes from the Father. We also get to see that He chose to do it. It says, even, and He chose us, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. We find that it comes from the Father. We find that it's His choice. When we're dealing with all these aspects of grace, 
And then he goes on to say that it was according to the purpose of his will. Not only was it his choice to do it for us, but it was his will to do it for us. And I don't know about you, but that is a good thing. That God not only chose to do it, but it's not like somebody was forcing him to do it. It's not like he was like, man, I don't really have any better options. This was his will. This is what he wanted. God wanted you to be saved. He wanted you to be set free. He wanted you to be made brand new, and he chose you before the foundation of the world to do that. And these blessings that he has bestowed upon us are according to the praise of his grace. Or it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. These things that are upon us, this, this choosing, all of this is to the praise of his grace. This is all an outpouring, an experience of his grace. And what did we say that was earlier? It's everything that he accomplished inside of his son that we utterly need, that we don't deserve, and that he didn't have to give. According to the, to the, pra- to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, who receive all these things through his grace. And it doesn't stop there because he keeps going. He says, in him we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. That's pretty awesome, right? But it doesn't stop there either because then we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, redemption of his, his blood, the forgiveness of his trespasses, or his forgiveness, redemption is a, the brand new life that we have. We've been redeemed to who we were in Adam. Instead of when Adam, before he fell, we were redeemed to that same state, which is perfect standing before God. We get a newness of life. And if you continue reading on in Ephesians, Ephesians is a great book, by the way. You should spend a lot of time in it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We find out that not only did God, did this come from God, not only was it his choice, but he wanted to do it. He made us brand new. He forgave us of our sins. And he did it in such a way through grace that we, it's by faith, not anything of our own. We didn't earn it. We didn't, certainly didn't deserve it. And he didn't have to do it. Yet he still did because he loved us. And what this should tell you is that, that he didn't do this. He didn't extend grace towards you because of, of how good that you were doing. Or that your, your life is getting a little bit better. Things are getting better. You're, you're doing the right things. He doesn't say, you know, if you would just read your Bible a little bit longer every day, then we might be in a spot where I could save you. But no, he, he looked at you and he found you at your worst. When you were so far from God that you couldn't even see him at all. When you were so far from God where you were probably angry and hated him. And, and maybe like me, you were wondering why did God want to remove all this fun from your life. And you just wanted to get as far away as possible and live your life. Even when I was there, he still loved me. And he still did these things for me. And he didn't do it because of the things I was doing. He did it in spite of the things that I was doing. That's grace in spite of the things that we're doing. Because the simple definition of grace is getting something you don't deserve. But it is so much more than that. But if we don't have a, an understanding, if we don't have a real revelation of what was accomplished in Jesus for us, it'll be impossible to extend grace towards others. Because we see them with our own eyes instead of with his But you might say, Pastor Wayne, it seems like this is in the domain of the realm of God then to extend something like this. But something that I find amazing in 
Genesis one twenty six through 27. I still find this amazing every time I read this because I'm like, are you sure? Genesis one twenty six through 27 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image and our like, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all uh, creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created him. Here's the thing. You were made in God's image. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to look like him. God is spirit. We're, we're flesh and bones. God, probably the one person that looks better than me. I'll, I'll concede that. It doesn't mean that we look like him, but it means that we're made in his image as far as his characteristics are concerned. And if we all sat down to think about what are some of the characteristics of God that, we're, that we have the image of, we could, we could probably come up with a bunch. Right? God is loving. God is caring. Kind. God is forgiving. God is wise. He is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is pure. All of these things, that's the image that we were made in. That's the standing that Adam had before the fall. He was made in that image. And I recognize when the fall came, a lot of that fell away with it. Man was corrupted. Man did stupid stuff. And it's not man and woman. You know, if anyone wants to complain about the words being used, it's all of us. We're all equally in a mess without Jesus. The thing is, though, when you get saved, when you get born again, you're restored to the same position that Adam had. You're restored. All those characteristics that may not have been yours, they are now yours by the power of the Holy Spirit because you have been made brand new. You are redeemed and you are given a brand new life. Therefore, we ought to live in such a way that these characteristics are being manifested in our life. Because we're made in His image, with His characteristics. God is loving, we should be loving. God is kind, we should be kind. God is forgiving, we should be forgiving. God is righteous, so we should live righteously. In addition, if you need further convincing, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is in 1 Corinthians 11.1. And we know that Christ demonstrated every single one of those characteristics and many more that I just spouted out. Because in Jesus was the embodiment of grace. And how he lived his life showed all the characteristics of God. And Paul demonstrated these same characteristics as well as he lived his life. Otherwise, he's making a pretty bold claim if he's not actually imitating Christ. But he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's a pretty bold claim if you think about that. It would be much easier for me to say, You know, do as I say, not as I do. Imitate Christ. Don't do all the things I do. But Paul was convinced of the life that he was to live, the characteristics that he was to have, and he imitated Christ in how he lived his life. And he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is how we're supposed to live our lives. But you might say, Pastor Wayne, I'm just not really a a loving person. That's just not really who I am. Or, Pastor Wayne, I'm not really a forgiving person. I have a a hard time with it. It's just not really who I am. Or, Pastor Wayne, I'm just not really a insert any characteristic that we just talked about. 
that you want. That's just not who I am. But the thing is, it's because you don't have a revelation of when you were born again, you were made brand new. You maybe not used to have been like that. If you knew me before I got saved, you wouldn't like me very much. I'm assuming you like me now. Maybe you don't. But, but back then, you certainly would not have. One of the things my, my mom would always tell me and my sister would tell me was that I was selfish. And I was so selfish I couldn't even see it. I thought they were just wrong. I look back now and, and I'm ashamed at how right they were. But the thing is, I was made brand new when I accepted Jesus Christ into my life. The old man, the unselfish guy, the stubborn guy, the pain-in-the-butt guy, the disrespectful guy, he died. When I got baptized, we had a funeral for him. And I was given a brand new life inside of me. One that restored me to that image of God. And when I didn't used to be a very loving person, all of a sudden now, I'm able, and it's not that I, I, I have to, to try to do it. Something happened inside of me. When I was born again, I was changed. I was brand new. But some of you guys and some many Christians are holding on to that old man so hard that, that those characteristics are still shining through. Instead of letting it go and living who Christ made you to be. Because the thing is, the new you is all of those things. Through grace. We certainly didn't deserve to be restored. We certainly didn't deserve to, to even have any of these characteristics. Truth be told, objectively, looking at who humans are before Christ, God probably should have just let them all go in the flood. Because we didn't deserve to be saved at that point. We certainly didn't deserve to be saved by Jesus Christ. We didn't do anything to earn it. Even the best of us are pretty awful at times. But we have a new self because of the grace of Jesus Christ that he gave to us freely. And every time we act in contradiction to the image and characteristics of Jesus Christ, did you know that you're acting out of character? That's why when you act this way, it feels so weird because you're going against the grain. That's not who you are anymore. That's why you feel a, a difference. That's why you feel that, that twinge of guilt or your conscience weighing on you because that's not who you are. You're actually, it's like when you rub sandpaper together. It's, it's not supposed to go. You're going against the grain, acting out of character. That's why it feels weird because you're not being yourself. So when people say, I'm not loving, I'm not kind, Quit acting like somebody else and act like who you are in Christ. So how do we extend grace? In Galatians 6, 1 through 2, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we not become like that slave we read about in the beginning where we've received so much but we extend so little? One, I think we need to make restoring people a priority when they fall. We need to forgive people. And it's a whole other message. Forgiveness does not mean forget. Forgiveness does not mean sweep aside. Forgiveness does not mean everything's better after that. Many times it's not. You know, I believe that if 
if uh, a wife is being abused by her husband, that she should forgive him. I don't think, particularly if there's no growth or restoration on his side, she probably shouldn't live with him anymore. She probably shouldn't go home and act like everything's okay, but she should forgive because that just hurts herself. Forgiveness is not to say it is okay. Forgiveness is not to say that it didn't happen. But it is necessary for your own healing. So we extend grace by, one, helping to restore people. And I'm talking about people that are repentant and wanting to be restored. I'm not talking about bullheaded people who are stubborn and are going to remain in their sin because they want to. You know, Paul dealt with that a few times. He said when people lived like that, he, he uh, submitted them to Satan, pushed them out of the church and let them deal with their stuff. I'm not talking about people that, that are, are living in sin intentionally and have no intention of repenting. But I am talking about people who have fallen, who have stumbled. And they're trying to get back up. We need to work to restore them. We need to forgive them and help them grow. The scripture says that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens doesn't just mean helping them move when they got a new house. Sometimes it means walking through them, through some of the the gross, disgusting stuff. Now it does say that we need to watch ourselves lest you too be tempted. You know, if, if you're a recovering alcoholic, you probably don't want to, to be ministering to people at bars. Not a wise decision. I can say safely that I don't need to go anywhere near a strip club to minister to people. Because that's not going to be effective for me. But the truth is, is that we do need to bear, walk with people when they're struggling, when they're falling. Help lift them back up. Because the thing is, is that one another's burdens oftentimes includes the stumbling and the falling and the tripping and the hard stuff. See, that's the thing is, you guys have heard me say, a church is a family. And we should act like a family. My sister has done some dumb stuff. And the truth is, is I've probably done way more harsh stuff to her. And we've been angry at each other. We've been at each other's throats. But I know for a fact, if I needed something, I could call her in an instant. She would be there, and she knows the same. The truth is that when you're in a family, sometimes people offend you. Sometimes people do dumb things. There is a 99.999% chance that I will offend you at some time. I won't intend to. I'll never intend to hurt anybody or offend anybody. And and as soon as I find out, I'll be the first one to try to figure out how I can make it right. But I hope that when we go through those things, that like a family, we work through it. See, the thing is, is it's not how we, not, not that those things happen, and they will, and obviously we don't want to. We're going to teach people to, to, to do the right thing. But when those things happen, how do we react? How do we handle it? Do we go off looking for another church? Another? Could you imagine if every time something bad happened in your house that you just went off looking for a new family? You would never grow relationships. You would never get plugged in. You would never make an impact where you're at if you're always looking for something else. We're a family. We, we put up with one another. We love one another even when we have ugly times and we help people grow and get past those ugly times. And the scripture says, by doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. Why is that? It's because that's how love is expressed. 
That's how freedom is expressed. That's how grace is expressed by loving one another. Ephesians 4.15 says, we're to speak the truth in love to one another as we grow in Christ. So many people take speaking the truth as a way to point out people's failures, but that's not what the truth is. The truth is is that they're forgiven. The truth is that they're free. The truth is that's not who they used to be. The truth is is that, that God has done a work inside of you. That's speaking the truth. Instead of pointing out their failures, remind them what Christ has done in them. Remind them that's not who they are anymore. That's speaking the truth in love. I mean, how much of an impact would it make in your life if you stumbled or you had an issue where you fell and instead of somebody coming and pointing the finger at you, telling you that you're condemned and and you're not saved anymore or or any other thing that, that people say, Imagine if they would have came and said, hey, that's not, who you used to, that's not who you are anymore. Don't you know that you're forgiven? Don't you know that you're free? Don't you know that you've been redeemed? Don't you know that you're brand new? Don't forget that stuff. Don't live like somebody else. Instead, live like who you are. And let me help you do that. Is there anything I can do? Do you need someone to help you be accountable? I can be there for you. And I'll do it with love, with no judgment. I'll help lift you up. Do you need someone to just call on you? you? need someone to pray with you? What would it look like if we treated people like that? Maybe if that's the attitude we would take when people are struggling, they wouldn't be so afraid to ask for help. And we'll finish up here in James 5, 19 through 20. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, when someone has fallen or is struggling, don't ever underestimate the power that you have to influence their life and the outcome of what they're coming through. And this power that you have is both good and bad. It can go either way. If we condemn or if we ostracize, we run the real risk of pushing somebody away from God, from running away from God instead of running back towards Him. We, we push them so that they run away from restoration and they dive into their shame and their guilt. But when we extend grace, we can help them return home. We can ensure that they have the greatest chance of redemption. And I get it. They still have to make a choice. You can't make a choice for them. But man, we can make sure that they have ever opportunity. We can make sure that nothing stands in the way. We can make sure that uh, we weren't the reason why they went running the other way. If we extend grace to them and help them return home, we can ensure they have the greatest chance of recovery and restoration and redemption. It actually says that when we do that, we will cover a multitude of sins. There's a couple places where this is worded like that, and it always used to always confuse. What does that mean, cover a multitude of sins? Because if you're not careful, you can mean that it implies that Jesus wasn't enough, and then somehow we have to do a little bit extra on top. But that's actually not what it means. The problem is a lot of this times when people are falling away, it sins against one another. But if we'll act out in love, it'll cover those sins and allow them to break through that, allow forgiveness and healing to happen. What it does is instead of 
extending grace to them in that situation ensures that sin doesn't gain a foothold in our homes, in our families, in our churches, even in our own lives. It doesn't let it get a foothold when we forgive and extend grace. Church, I would love to see this stuff handled so much differently across the board. And I don't know if the reason why so many people aren't here today is because this is a message the devil didn't want them to hear. I got a news for him. It's recorded. We're going to put it online and let anybody listen to it. But I want to see a change in the way that we treat people. And it's going to take some thought about it, praying on the stuff that I, we went over today. Pray about it. Find the scriptures on your own. Read about it. Think about what's been extended towards you. If you're like me, sometimes you have to ask God to help him see, help you see like he sees, because I don't always see like he sees. My instinct is to point out the flaw and condemn. I thank God that's not his instinct. So church, let's be a people who extend grace instead of who withhold it. Let's be a people who demonstrate what it means to be a Christian. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, bow our head.